0: The soles of your sandals brush against the smooth stones along the road. It's quite a familiar sound. You've walked this road countless times before, remembering the hot summer days spent cutting and laying down the stones with your father and brother. However, those days are far gone now, and today nostalgia is much too painful to bear. There is a heavy feeling on your heart. You know this day has been coming for a long time. Many onlookers peer at you as you walk by. The quiet murmur of their chatter lingers in the air. However, it is silence compared to the once busy streets. And all that are left clearly have been through a lot in these past years. Looking back at the mismatched crowd lining the road, you see some are still weak and feeble from the great plague that once burned through the city. Many others are young, their fathers having long died in the war. Some once rich, now begging for bread in the same streets they once owned. And as they all watch you, you see tears from some, awe from many, while others spit on the very ground you are walking. Looking at the youth in the crowd and their stunned faces, you are reminded of your pupils. The bright and talented young men, whom you once hoped would develop their minds, discover the world, and adventure into the unknown bounds of intellect. Your vision begins to blur as you wipe the tears from your eyes. Most are dead now, thrust into the war only to be struck down like cattle. But some are still living, and they show great potential. This gives you solace, for they make every step you are taking worth it. Continuing towards your trial, you step down the stairs through a dark-stained courtyard. And you pause. This city... It used to be so beautiful. Everything has changed so much. The Acropolis still sits proudly atop the hill, but below it are the many ruined buildings, stained by the fires that burn through the streets. The statues, once representing the paragon of our democracy, now cracked and broken along with its people. Years of warfare, defeat, sickness, and hunger have all changed this once great city. And you watched it happen before your very eyes. Years ago, you foresaw the calamity when Alcibiades came to you for help. Led by young arrogance and ambition, he thought he was bringing Athens to greatness. You tried to stop it, to help him understand his folly and the great disaster that would come. But his passion burned too strong. An unrelenting spirit in which you failed to stop. Perhaps the biggest mistake of your life. And maybe you deserve what you are getting because of that failure. No! To you, this is an opportunity to stand up for your beliefs. Yes, it seems that all you have done is teach the youth of Athens how to think and speak. But to your accusers, you and everything you stand for is a threat. And now as you peer at the crowd watching you, you see inspiration. These young men are looking to you to see how you act. You, Socrates, the great teacher, the great philosopher. They are expecting something from you, and it dawns on you that you need to be the person they are expecting. Someone who stands for more than their own life, but an idea. It all becomes clear now. You straighten your back, and you look forward as you walk faster, confidence in every step. You know your guilt has already been determined, and you are walking to your death. But to escape death is to stand down, to forsake your life's work. And in this city, destroyed from war and disease, you can choose to stand above it all. That Athens might mean something, that your work might mean something, that your ideas might stand the test. And for the sake of those who have come and gone and all that remain now watching you, you must. As you reach the wooden gates of the ornate courthouse, you swing the wide doors open and step inside. A guard carrying a spear steps before you. You give each other a nod as he leads you down to the main chamber. The fragrance of anticipation lingers in the air. As you take your steps towards the center of the room, you pay close attention to the counselors. Their robes, laid with luxurious fabrics and sparkling gems. Their desks, stacked high with plates of fresh grapes, pears, and olives. Their teeth stained red from the constant flow of wine, and their eyes bloodthirsty, seeking to end everything you stand for. And if not that, then your life. And after six hours of debate between you and your three accusers, you lay your case and sit back down in your chair. As the room quiets down, people softly mutter between themselves all eyes are trained on you. After signifying the votes, a footman walks over and whispers into the ear of the head chancellor, and with the sly prowess of a snake, he motions towards you. Before the gods and all of Athens, you, Socrates, refusing to recognize the gods recognized by the state and for corrupting the youth, are sentenced to death. You're hit by nausea as your knees begin to tremble. But you remember again what all this is for. Taking a deep breath, you defiantly gaze into his eyes as a slave brings forth the cup of hemlock. Your heart is beating fast as you feel a deep despair within you. And as the counselors joyfully peer towards you, you notice your nearby pupils are weeping. You must be strong. and So you quickly gain your composure. This is it, your life's work. Without tremor, with no change of color or expression, you readily and cheerfully raise the chalice to your mouth and drink to the last drop. Hello and welcome to the West and How We Got Here, episode two, The Great Philosophers. I'm your host, Cameron Fan. In the last episode, we talked about how Western civilization is the struggle between reason and revelation. Reason as represented by Athens and revelation as represented by Jerusalem. Now, the Adam and Eve story paved the way for the revelatory foundation of Western civilization. It brought about the idea of objective morality and the human condition. So in this episode, we'll be looking at the birth of reason in ancient Greece. While it is true the ancient Greeks are not the founders of science, their philosophy is the foundation for Western science and reason, with Athens as its symbolic pinnacle. As we'll see, most of our time in ancient Greece will be spent in Athens, as it's truly unmatched in the amount of philosophers and great works that came out of it. However, while we examine the ancient Greeks, it is important to note that these works were not produced within the vacuum of peace. In fact, from 431 to 404 raids the Great Peloponnesian War, in which many of the philosophers and people we'll look at actually served in. This includes the great philosopher of our intro, Socrates. Now, when analyzing some of these great men, it may become obvious just how similar many of them are, and how they influenced each other. After all, nearly all of these people knew each other, and many even collaborated on their great works. This is something you'll notice as we go throughout the philosophers. Now, before we begin, many of you may be wondering if we'll be examining Greek mythology and the gods. The short answer is no. We'll only examine the creation of the universe according to the Greeks to be able to compare it to the Hebrews. But we will not be spending any time on the Greek gods, myths, or stories. While they are very fascinating, they do not directly contribute to the basis of Western philosophy. And so, for the purpose of our exploring of Western civilization, they would just be a distraction. So, let's jump right in. In the beginning there was only chaos emptiness then from the formless void sprang three primordial deities gaia the earth tartarus the underworld and eros love because eros brought love into the universe gaia and chaos the two female deities began to procreate thereby shaping the universe chaos gave birth to erebus the darkness and nyx the light Erebus then procreated with his sister Nyx, and from them came Aether, the air, and Hemera, the day. Nyx was feared by all except Erebus, and by herself she made a family, bringing in the hated Moros, fate. Care, doom. Thanatos, death. Hypnos, sleep. Oneroi, dreams. Geras, old age. Oasis, pain. Nemesis, revenge. Eris, Strife, Apate, Deceit, Philotes, Sexual Pleasure, Momos, Blame, and Hesperides, Daughters of the Evening. So, really a fun time, this family. Meanwhile, Gaia gave birth to Uranus, the starry sky. Uranus then became Gaia's husband, and together they birthed the three one-eyed cyclops, Hecedancheris, and the twelve titans. Uranus was eventually killed for his cruelty by the titan Kronos, who eventually was also killed for cruelty by the god Zeus, thus forming the world that is governed by the gods. The creation story of the Greeks is obviously very different from the Hebrews. First, we see that there are multiple gods, all of them manifesting as an attribute of the universe. We also see that the Greek creation story is very intertwined with sexual relationships between deities. Now, this is something that is never seen in the Bible. God is never even associated with anything having to do with sexual procreation. As a moral arbiter and creator, he is above it. However, the most striking thing we see in the Greek gods is how flawed and arbitrary they are. This is likely the biggest difference between the Greeks and the Hebrews in terms of religion. Many of the Greek gods are flawed individuals and some are downright evil. There is no objective morality or way to live. And in this way, the gods become indistinguishable from humanity. The only thing that separates them is power, nothing more. The Hebrew God of the Bible promotes objective morality and universal purpose, while the Greek gods are practically arbitrary humans. Because of this, the Greeks lived very promiscuous lives, and the concept of objective morality was not widespread. Morality was based on the gods that you chose to follow, and goodness was decided based upon the favor of the gods, which, as we will see in episode 4, was based. Again, on power. Now, this is one of the reasons why many philosophers such as Socrates and Aristotle did not believe in the gods in the same sense as most Greeks. However, they were not exactly atheists. These philosophers believed that there is a god and that humans could use reason to find him. They rejected polytheistic notions of gods manifesting universal attributes. Instead, they believed that if there is a god, he must be the creator and designer of the universe something to give purpose to all things. And humans, in their capacity to use reason, could look to their own purpose and discover God through metaphysics, the science of sciences. But I'm already getting ahead of myself. Let us start with the philosopher who began it all. This man's ideas and methods inspired countless numbers of those who came after him. In fact, he's been so impactful in Western civilization that his methods are still used today in debate. Of course, I am talking about the star of our intro. I am referring to Socrates. Now, Socrates is a very difficult person to talk about. He left us no written works or accounts, and all the things we know about him come from those who wrote about him after he had died. Most of our information about his life comes from Plato, Xenophon, and a few other philosophers. Yet, even though they often wrote about him, they had different portrayals of him and what he was like as a person. For example, according to Plato and Xenophon, Socrates refused payment for his teachings. He was apparently only concerned with the only pursuit that has ever mattered, discussing philosophy, in which he often pointed to his poverty as proof. However, in Aristophanes' Clouds, Socrates runs a school with Schaeferon. So which is it? Well, the truth is, we don't know, and we'll likely never know. All right, well, what about the philosophical beliefs of Socrates? Well, again, since Socrates has no written works, we must look to those who came after him. And what we see is that, amazingly, Socrates believed and studied everything that philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, Xenophon, and Aristophanes studied and believed. They even drew upon him as an authority in many of their written works. Therefore, what this likely means is that many of the things written about Socrates, posthumously, is really what others believed, and again, based their ideas on Socrates as an authoritative source. Adversely, it is really difficult to distinguish between what Socrates believed and what other philosophers say he believed. But not all is lost. We still generally know a lot about Socrates and his beliefs, and so we can analyze exactly what we do know. This way, we can cover what we know about him, and for the parts we don't understand, we can simply look to the other philosophers. So let's start at the beginning. Now Socrates was born in 470 BC in Athens. His father was a stonemason named Sophroniscus, and his mother was a midwife named Pheronite. Socrates himself is described as being quite ugly and having a babyish face. And later in his life, he married Xanthipe, who was known to not be the most pleasant of women. Together, they ended up having three sons, Lamprocles, Sophroniscus, and Menexenus. Apparently, Socrates was a stonemason like his father, and it's said that Socrates was the one who crafted the statues of Charities next to the Acropolis. However, this is disputed. Now, Socrates also served in the Athenian military during the Peloponnesian War, which is a war we'll cover in great detail in episode 4. He is reported to have fought in the battles of Amphipolis, Delium, and Potidaea. It is said that Socrates distinguished himself in the Battle of Delium by General Lachis. Socrates often recalls his military service in his philosophy, even making reference to it at his execution. As an interesting start to his philosophy, it is said that Socrates' friend, Cherophon, went to the oracle of Delphi and asked him if anyone was wiser than Socrates, in which it replied, no. Funny enough, Socrates was taken aback by this answer, believing himself to have no wisdom at all. Therefore, to prove that the oracle was wrong, he began seeking out the wisest men in Athens to question them on their wisdom. Yet, he found that while they all believed themselves to be wise, they knew very little and were not wise at all. Socrates realized that he was wiser than all the wisest men in Athens because he was simply aware of his own ignorance. His public questioning of the wisest Athenians generally made them look foolish, which understandably gained Socrates many enemies. However, Socrates believed that he was performing a public service for Athens. He was a fierce critic of Athenian democracy and considered himself the gadfly of Athens. He often praised Sparta and Persia, the two greatest rivals of Athens, though he did it to show the problems underlying Athens. He always remained loyal to his city in the end. So, to really give an idea of Socrates' perception of his public service, Athenian law dictated that those who are found guilty of a crime are afforded the opportunity to suggest their own punishment, which may or may not be agreed upon by a council. When Socrates was found guilty of corrupting the Athenian youth, He proposed that for his punishment, he receive a wage from the government and free meals for the rest of his life, as was owed to him as Athens' chief benefactor. In case you're wondering, the council was not amused by this request. Now the question remains, why go through all of this trouble? What was it that Socrates believed so fiercely that he was willing to die for it? The answer is philosophy itself. As Socrates said, all of philosophy is training for death. To understand what he means, let's get into the first and most important philosophical lesson that Socrates gave us—the Socratic method. The Socratic method might be one of the most important contributions that Socrates gave to the West. It's certainly his longest-lasting. First described in Plato's Socratic Dialogues, the Socratic method is a method of inquiry in which one poses a series of logical questions to another with the simple purpose of discovering an underlying fact. For example, if someone was to claim in court that they were unaware of a specific set of events that are paramount to the case, then the prosecutor would ask a series of questions to come to the truth. Where were you on February 6? What were you doing? Can you give us specific details? Do you remember what you were driving? These questions are meant to deduce if the person is telling the truth. This method of analysis and inquiry has defined legal education for centuries. It is also widespread in psychology and therapy, in which the psychologist or therapist will ask a series of qualifying questions to gauge the thought process of a patient and figure out where their thinking went wrong. However, the Socratic method is more than just a legal or psychological method. It's also used to learn moral truths in philosophy, as we'll see when we get to Aristotle. The power of the Socratic method cannot be overstated. It may seem simple but the Socratic method is one of the simplest and efficient ways to distinguish truth from lies. So the Socratic method is the basis of all philosophy and inquiry. It is the starting point for the discovery of truth. For example, in asking the questions why and why not, you have already started your path to the truth. All the Greek philosophers that preceded Socrates use his method as their foundation for all of their works. Now, there is so much more we could go into about Socrates and his beliefs, and they would all be relevant. But it brings us to the problem that I mentioned earlier. Since Socrates has no written works, it is nearly impossible to distinguish between his beliefs and those who are writing about him. For this reason, we are just going to move straight on to Plato, who helped further develop many of Socrates' alleged beliefs. So to start with Plato's philosophy, we are going to cover one of his most distinguished ideas an allegory for the state of the world that human beings find ourselves in. A world separated by those who have been liberated by reason and those who have no conception of liberation. And it all starts in a cave. Feeling the soft, warm waves of heat on your back, you open your eyes to a familiar sight. The warm glare of a dim-lit room shines across the cold stone wall in front of you. Soft yawning can be heard to the left and right of you as your friends begin to wake. And as you begin to hear the sounds of shuffling behind you, you strain to turn your head. However, the chains binding you make it impossible to do so. You would describe your surroundings in more detail, but you can only look forward. You and others have been chained facing this wall for your entire life. And as all your friends awake, the images begin. As has occurred every day of your entire life, the light on the wall becomes obscured as black objects of various shapes begin to travel along it. Everything from dogs to puppets to household objects all pass along the wall. And as per usual, you can hear the sounds of soft speaking emanating from them. You and the others have often pondered on these shapes, trying to figure out what they're saying, and in fact have worked every day on defining the different objects. You would even say that you've become quite the experts of your study on the various objects and creatures. Occasionally, you might get into an argument with the others about the entities, but as each item is quite obvious, the debates never last long. And so this is your entire life. You are never bored of it. You never wonder if there's anything more. Actually, you're quite content with your reality. Then one day, something quite peculiar happens. The chains that have held your neck, body, and hands in place your entire life suddenly fall to the ground. Immediately, your entire world changes you're struck by the quick change of weight as you stumble around, nearly falling to your knees. You've never been unsupported by the chains, and so you quickly feel nauseated by the sudden instability of your own weight. But as you manage to slowly turn your body, you refrain from fully turning as the emanating light heavily strains your eyes and blurs your vision. A sharp pain you've never felt before grows in the back of your head. And as you look up, begin to see odd representations of the shapes you once saw on the wall being carried by people. A wall separated the people and the objects they carried, making you unable to see the people themselves. However, all the tension and pain of this pseudo-reality are too incomprehensible to understand, so you quickly get back to reality and turn to the wall, staring at the clear, black images. And with a sigh of relief, the stress soon leaves you. You are never going to turn around again. as the sound of people shuffling behind you grows louder, fear strikes your heart as hands instantly grab your shoulders, throwing you to the ground to begin dragging you backwards. You are furious, kicking and screaming. You try to escape for your life. But as the guard is much stronger than you, you are dragged further and further away from the wall. Your eyes grow in pain with every second, and the light from the entrance of the cave slowly grows. You begin to realize that the black images never spoke. It was always the men speaking behind you, men you never even knew existed. The fear in your heart now begins to turn to terror. With a loud grunt, the girl hurls you outside the entrance of the cave as you are absolutely overwhelmed and fuming with rage. The radiant light is so bright that you are completely blinded, not even able to escape the pain when closing your eyes. <sighs> but after a while, your eyes begin to adjust. And while squinting, you barely begin to make out the same black images you once saw on the wall inside the cave. You begin to feel hope as perhaps this crazy nightmare is ending. However, as the world around you slowly becomes clear, black images slowly transform into objects unlike anything you've ever seen before. Your entire world is falling down around you. You refuse to believe what you are seeing. Surely this is a dream, and when you wake up, all you will see are those black images on the wall again. Surely you will return to your comfortable existence in reality. This is not a dream, and the world around you is real. After taking time to calm yourself, you begin to pay attention to your surroundings. And What you see begins to amaze you. You see a brand new world, surrounded by grass and trees, flowers of every color and every kind a soft breeze blowing against your back. As you gain courage to start walking around, you look up. Again, you are hit by a blinding light. As you adjust to the brightness a little more, you are stunned. You see a blue sky with clouds and birds flying through it. Finally, your eyes are adjusted And as you gaze upon the sun for the first time, the terrifying, blinding light, although still painful, has now become beautiful. After looking at the sun, you turn around from where you came and you see a dark, decrepit cave. Over the course of the next few days, you spend your time learning about this new world studying it, observing all of its intricacies. You quickly learn that those black shapes you once saw are just shadows formed by the real objects that make them. You see people of all different kinds, and you learn of your very own reflection. This new world, this radiant world, this, this is reality, not those shadows you once knew. All the terror you once had has now been replaced with excitement and thankfulness. The bright light that once terrorized and blinded you has now shown itself to reveal true reality, something you would have never comprehended before in the cave. And as you soon think about the cave, you are hit by a realization. The others, they're still in darkness. You need to save them, to show them the true world. It would be selfish to only allow yourself to enjoy this new reality. This amazing discovery must be shared with everyone. Imagine how much better life would be for all of us. And so you quickly decide to return to the cave. Upon reaching the entrance of the cave, you peer into it as you are unable to see past the darkness. So as you enter the cave, just as when you left it, quickly become blinded and as you use your hands to guide yourself in the cave feels different somehow i mean you've spent your entire life here but for some reason this time it's not the same and as you make the long descent into the cave you quickly realize the walk has become much more difficult than anticipated the cave is pitch black and you can barely see in front of you Your eyes spent so much time in the light, they are no longer adjusted to the darkness. But you finally reach the opening of the cavern, and you make your way inside. Stepping in, it's still hard to see, and you have trouble making your way to the other chained prisoners. And as you're stumbling around, you begin to hear them laughing. Once you compose yourself and get a good look at your chained friends, you take pity on them. You must help them escape to see the true reality and world that you have discovered. And so, you begin to tell them of the new reality you have experienced and explain it to them. The black images are fake, and everything we once knew was all incorrect. These are actually just shadows casted by the fire onto real objects carried by people. Astonished, they look at you. But only begin to laugh. One chained man speaks. Why should we believe you and your great journey when it's clearly made you blind? But you continue to plead with them to believe you and trust in what you're saying. However, they begin to more aggressively reject you, calling you a fool. Their laughter grows louder as more people begin to hear of your lunacy. Finally, you decide you have no choice. You'll force them out of the cave just like you were forced. So, despite their protests, you begin to unshackle them and try to force them to leave the cave. But in their terror, they band together and begin to overpower you. They refuse the world you are offering them and reject the fact that their reality is a lie. And although you try to fight, you are much too weak to take them all. And in a final attempt to protect their own reality, they kill you. In fact, They would kill anyone who attempted to drag them out of the cave. They will spend the rest of their lives watching the shadows on the wall. Because lies are easier to accept than the truth. The allegory of the cave perfectly portrays Plato's belief that mankind is separated into two groups. The ignorant, who don't seek knowledge beyond what is given, and the enlightened has learned that there is more to reality, and therefore it is his duty to bring those around him out of darkness. However, as shown in the cave, bringing the truth has consequences. Being enlightened would mean subjecting yourself to the hatred and ridicule of the ignorant. And why not? Ignorance is bliss, and so men are willing to fight to stay in the dark. After all, There are deep truths about the nature of our universe that terrifies people because then they have to deal with the consequences of their knowledge. So let's break down the principles behind Plato's cave. The cave itself represents the superficial reality and understanding that most humans have of the universe. In other words, we see the ignorance of those who never question their reality. This is helped along further by the fire, which represents those who wish to fool us and how easy it is to fool us. The men tried to understand the shadows, but shadows are a lack of light. They are blurred, two-dimensional silhouettes that often is bent from whatever is casting it, but otherwise completely different from the object itself. The truth is not the shadow, but what forms the shadow. However, if all you know is the shadow, then you can never possibly understand your own ignorance. Because understanding your own ignorance means facing a fundamental flaw in your own humanity. It means to realize that you are chained, perceiving superficially and not really understanding. And so, of course, when we see that the prisoner escapes the cave, he is blinded by the light of the sun. The light of the sun representing wisdom and knowledge are blinding when you first see it because of the shock that occurs when you leave an ignorant reality. There are many great truths in this world that are painful to acknowledge, that are easier to stay ignorant about. But to be enlightened means to search for the truth no matter how painful. Now, what does all of this really mean? Well, let's connect it back to Western civilization. Plato's cave is important to the West because it implies that there are higher truths than the ones that we superficially perceive. Take objective morality, for example. We cannot see it in our world, it has no shape or form, and cannot be proven with science. But that's the point. There are a set of principles that govern the universe that comes after the sciences. Aristotle called it metaphysics, literally translating into after-physics. The importance of Plato's cave is that it tells us there are truths beyond our senses, and it's our duty as human beings to find those truths. This is one of the key points of Athens, of reason. And by refusing to search for truth past your own perception, you are not living a life of reason. You are living a life of ignorance. Getting back to Plato, he is again one of these philosophers that have profoundly affected the philosophy of the West. His allegory of the cave only represents a small fraction of the many works that he has done. But who is Plato, and what else has he contributed? Well, although much is disputed, Plato was born in 428 or 427 BC in Athens. He belonged to a rich and aristocratic family. Plato's mother was named Perictaphone, who happened to be the sister of Charmides and niece of Critias was one of the 30 tyrants following the fall of Athenian democracy after the Peloponnesian War. His father was Ariston, who claimed to be a descendant of Cadrus, the king of Athens. So, Plato's early life involved some of the best education a Greek boy could receive, including studying the sciences, music, athletics, and philosophy. Although Plato was greatly influenced by Socrates, it's also reported by Aristotle and Cicero that he was greatly influenced by Pythagoras. Yes, the creator of the Pythagorean Theorem. Later in his studies, Plato became a disciple of Socrates. Upon Socrates' death, Plato, along with many others, became a Socratic, or those who preserved the ideas of Socrates. In 387 BC, Plato created his school of philosophy called the Academy. This school became one of the largest centers of learning and philosophy in the Mediterranean world, and where much of Plato's writings were archived until it was destroyed in 86 BC by the Roman dictator Sulla. Now, in regards to Western civilization, one way Plato profoundly impacted Western thought was in the question, is it better to be a just moral ruler or one which rules through expediency? This question is hotly debated in modern Western political science, and Plato talks about it in The Republic. In this dialogue, Plato attempts to describe the perfect republic. In doing this, he begins by trying to define justice. He does this by posing the question of social and moral obligation. As an individual of a polity, meaning a group of people, what is your obligation to it? The answer lies in wisdom. Plato believed that virtue comes from the pursuit of wisdom, and only those who have wisdom are fit to rule. Therefore, he separates all humans into three classes: those who seek wisdom and therefore destined to rule, those who are guardians and protect the polity, and those who are workers and provide for the polity. To be proficient at any of these jobs, one has to be groomed for it. For example, since only a ruler should be a philosopher king, then that ruler should have been groomed for ruling from birth through the pursuit of wisdom. Once a philosopher king knows wisdom, then he can know justice, and justice is the most important and fundamental aspect to ruling. This idea of a just, virtuous ruler will define Western philosophy up until Niccolo Machiavelli publishes The Prince, in which he declares that rulers should not rule by virtue, but by expediency. But that's a long way off. Upon learning of Plato's idea for the perfect polity, one might realize that this is nothing like the democracy in which Plato grew up in, or in which our modern sensibilities have a positive and moral attachment to. Plato's greatest contribution to philosophy is introducing the idea of virtue in politics. For hundreds of years after his writings, he is remembered for establishing the fundamental values behind Western political theory. And he's left unchallenged until nearly a thousand years later, when Machiavelli arrives on the scene. But even then, the impact of Plato's philosophy still affects Western thought today. Like all philosophers, there's so much more we could talk about with Plato, and one day we may. But for now, we must move on to the next great philosopher, as his ideals would further develop those of Socrates and Plato. Not much is known about Aristotle's life besides what we can tell from his various writings. We know that he was born in 384 BC in Stagaria Chaldees. His name literally means the best purpose, which is a wonderful foreshadowing to his life's work. His father, Nicomachus, was the personal physician to the king of Macedon. And after spending years in the service of the king, at around age 17 or 18, Aristotle moved to Athens to study at Plato's academy, in which he spent many years developing the basis of his philosophy. Soon after the death of Plato, Aristotle left the academy. Now, whether this was due to disagreement on the changing direction of the academy or to the anti Macedonian sentiments at the time, we may never know. Afterwards, Aristotle then lived in Asia Minor, and for a while, modern day Turkey. Then moved to Lesbos, where he researched botany and zoology. It was there he married Pythias, who bore him a daughter also named Pythias. And finally, in 343 BC, Aristotle returned to Macedonia to tutor the son of King Philip II, otherwise known as Alexander the Great. During this time, Aristotle was appointed head of the Royal Academy of Macedon. He also taught two other future kings, Ptolemy and Cassander, and it seems that Aristotle also had an impact on Alexander himself encouraging him to unite the Greeks and to conquer the barbarous Persians, which he very well ended up doing. By 335 BC, Aristotle had returned to Athens and had opened his own school called the Lyceum. Shortly afterward, his wife Pythias died, and Aristotle became involved with Herpilus of Stagoria, who bore him a son, which they named after his father, Nicomachus. The second stay in Athens is when Aristotle composed most of his famous works, such as physics, metaphysics, and politics. However, by the time of Alexander the Great's death, anti-Macedonian sentiments flared up again in Athens. This moment was profound for Aristotle, as just like Socrates decades before, he was forced to choose death or exile. He famously commented, quote, I will not allow the Athenians to sin twice against philosophy, end quote, in reference to the death of Socrates. So he departed from Athens and settled in Euboea. By this time, his health was failing. And Aristotle soon died, leaving a will and was buried next to his wife. Now, when looking at the works left to us by many of these Greek philosophers, we see that Athenian democracy was overwhelmingly considered a failure by those who lived in it and studied it. Now, we'll discuss exactly why that was the case in episode six, but one of the largest takeaways is that Athenian democracy failed to be neither noble nor egalitarian. But a system run by the most basic and worst instincts of human beings. Take Aristotle's construction of government. He says that there are three forms of government government ruled by the one, by the few, and by the many. None of them are necessarily better than the others so long as they all remain moral. For a government to be moral, it has to be ruled by those who are moral and at the behest and benefit of its citizens, not of the ruler. So, listing out the moral governments, first you have the monarchy ruled by the one, you have the aristocracy ruled by the few. Lastly, you have the polity, which is ruled by the many. If all of these governments achieve eudaimonia, or happiness, then they are just. However, when these governments become corrupt and exist only for the benefit of themselves, they are no longer moral. Therefore, when a monarchy begins to exist only for the benefit of the monarch, it becomes a tyranny. When the aristocracy begins to only exist for the benefit of the rich, it becomes an oligarchy. And lastly, when the polity begins to exist only for the needy it becomes a democracy. That might make some heads turn, especially considering the value that modern Western culture places on democracy. But if the role of the state is to care for the common good of all, then once you begin to value the needy or poor over all people, you have created an immoral state. Let me give you a theoretical example. Let's say that we are living comfortable in our polity. Everyone has the right to vote, and we view ourselves more moral than those states which are ruled by the one or the few. Then one day, a new political superstar takes the stage and declares that the greatest evil of our time is poverty. And therefore, to eliminate poverty, we must eliminate all debt. Everyone cheers to a thunderous applause and follows this new political superstar. He becomes untouchable because now he has the support of the people by promising to end debt. So when the vote comes up, everyone decides to follow his lead and they all vote to end debt. But what happens is not the lifting up of the poor. It is rather the dissension of everyone too poor. Banks cannot exist anymore, landlords must shut down their properties, and even the ability to buy things has all been destroyed because all money, in essence, is debt. Therefore, we have more unemployment, no creditors or lenders, and a currency that has no value. Polity has now become a democracy because instead of doing what was good for all, the people chose to do what they thought was good for the needy at the expense of everyone in the state. Our government is no longer moral, and it's now a government of self-interest, in which its only purpose is for the benefit of a small minority, not the benefit of all. Does this sound familiar? Just because something is popular does not make it right, and this is precisely why the philosophers were so critical of democracy. Despite all of this, the philosophers were not necessarily adverse to democracy. After all, Aristotle still did believe that the polity is the best form of government. However, to Aristotle, what truly makes a good government is if it achieves eudaimonia, again, happiness. But he defines happiness very differently than we would. Aristotle believed that happiness was attained by living in accordance to virtue. For a state or regime to be good, it not only has to be virtuous, but allows its people to live virtuous lives. This means that a government should be structured in a way so that the rulers and ruled switch places periodically. The only time a ruler should remain in place forever is if he's the most virtuous person alive, akin to a god, in which Aristotle admits no likely person exists, and therefore rulers should be changed. Since we know that those who rule should be virtuous, it's important that they also be older, having experienced life and containing more wisdom. To be a good ruler, one must have the understanding and experience of being ruled over. Now, for a citizen, to be virtuous means to be actively seeking virtue and education. This is emphasized in the fact that the family must be concerned with child-rearing, so as to teach values to the next generation. Procreation, therefore, is the central pillar behind the transference of virtue, and marriage should be highly valued. Aristotle goes even further on marriage, believing that it should be regulated so that procreation takes place at the most opportune times. Now, the belief that a good government can only come from a virtuous society has had rather a large impact on Western civilization, especially in the founding of the United States. The Founding Fathers were very well-versed in the classics, and the system of government they made reflects it. Even John Adams, the second president of the United States, said, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, End quote. The Founding Fathers truly believed that for a government like the United States to succeed, the people had to be virtuous. They must know morality and God. Of course, Aristotle never came into contact with the God of Judaism, but he was not entirely a polytheist. In order for virtue to even exist, it must be objectively defined. Because if virtue is some subjective human construct, then it really doesn't exist. After all, if there is a morality, it has to be established by a creator who could define and give humans the capability to learn of it. Aristotle believed that that person, that creator, did exist. A creator of all things who defines virtue, whom of which could be discovered with reason. And Aristotle called him the unmoved mover. But what exactly is the unmoved mover? Well, let me try to define it with a situation. Let's say you are sitting in class one day, and you are looking at the pencil on your desk. You're really bored and a question pops up in your head. Where did this pencil come from? Well, although the pencil is made of many things, essentially it's made out of wood. Well, where did that wood come from? Of course, wood comes from trees. Okay then, where did that tree come from? Well, we know that a tree grew from a seed with a combination of water and energy from the sun. Okay, but where did the sun come from? Okay, well, we know the sun is made up of a variety of gases. So where do gases come from? We know that gas is made from a combination of elements and elements from matter. You can probably see where I'm going with this by now. And so skipping a few steps, most people believe that matter comes from the Big Bang. So what Aristotle discovered is that all things that happen have something that preceded it. Nothing acts on its own. It's acting based upon what came before it. In the modern day, we call this Newton's third law of physics. For every action, there must be an equal and opposite reaction. But there is only one problem. If you can keep tracing back a sequence of events to something that came before it, then eventually you get to the first event that everything sprang from. But this causes a logical problem. There can't be a first event or action, because it fundamentally breaks the third law of physics. If there's a first action, then there's nothing that preceded it. But if nothing preceded it, then how could it have been formed or acted upon? Aristotle says the answer is that there must be a being who exists outside of our universe. This being has the power to influence all things in our universe. However, nothing in our universe can act upon this being. He called it the unmoved mover because he moves all things, but nothing can move him. This is how God and physics can coexist. The designer of our universe, the creator of our universe, the first cause, is outside of our plane of existence. And we can tell he did indeed design our universe because by the mere fact of creating it, he gave it purpose. This idea might seem like a stretch at first, but take this example. Let's say there's a crafter. One day he decides to craft a chair and sell it at the market so you can buy it. Once you buy it, it's now your chair and you can do whatever you want with it. You can stand on it, you can ride on it, you can even throw it in a pit of fire, whatever you want. But if you were to ask what the chair is actually meant for, well, the answer's obvious. It's to be sat upon. But how do we know that this is the answer? Because the creator of the chair, in making it, endowed a telos upon it, a purpose. And that purpose is to be sat upon, which is the reason he made the chair. You don't have to use it for sitting, but no matter what you do, its purpose will always be to be sat on. If that was not the purpose of the chair, then the chair would have never been created. Well, if there's a creator of all things, that means he also created humans. And by the mere fact that he did create them, instilled purpose in them. But what is that purpose? Well, Aristotle believed that that purpose was to use reason in accordance with virtue. Essentially to use your own deductive powers to achieve eudaimonia, happiness. This. This is the first and ultimate role of the philosopher. To understand the science behind the sciences. To know that we live in a universe that is far more than what we see with our five senses, and far more complicated and meaningful than our own subjective experiences and ideas will allow for. Before we can even begin to study the sciences and the maths, we first have to know what even makes them possible. And now you see why Athens and Jerusalem are the key foundation of Western civilization. Athens, to teach us to interpret our reality through reason and to discover virtue. And Jerusalem, to give us the revelation of God and define that virtue, define that morality. If we even wish to begin to understand our physical world, we must first understand the metaphysical one. Next time on The West and How We Got Here, we'll be returning to the Bible and examining the aftermath of Adam and Eve up until Abraham. Because we now understand the human condition, we can see the implications of it and how it plays out in the world. If you guys have any questions about the Greek philosophers, feel free to shoot us an email at studios.redflag at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter or YouTube. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and a five-star rating. We would really appreciate it. Today's episode was written and produced by John Douglas and Cameron Fan. The West and How We Got Here is brought to you by Red Flag Studios.